Welcome back to One of Two Hundred, another episode of the New Zealand Independent Politics and Media Podcast. You're here with Philip. That's me. We also have Paul Kelland. Hey, Paul. Hey, everyone. And we have Jan Tuttenberg, a new contributor who's written a couple of articles on the site that you should go and check out. Um, he recently completed a PhD in contemporary German history at Oxford. Uh, and yeah, he's guessing on this show and we'll chip into some of these topics. How are you doing, Jan? Yeah, good. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's good to, it's good to have you. Um, it's nice to have a bit of different, uh, a few different voices, even if we're just talking about mostly New Zealand issues. It's always interesting to hear perspectives of people with a like different different angle so we're not always in the same bubble right yeah Carl, Carl and Bronco psyching off this week yeah I reckon um we should definitely cut their casual contracts to the bone <laughs> and remove their benefits um yeah so the first thing we wanted to talk about just quickly was the Roy Morgan poll a new poll came out um which seems to be kind of continuing the same story we've seen for a little while right Paul yeah, yeah. So I, I have the numbers in front of me, in fact. Um, yeah, so Labour and National were uh, the same as, as what they were in the previous Roy Morgan poll. Uh, so National on 38 and Labour on 32. Uh, Greens down half a point, but they're pretty steady in the long run. But I guess the, the only real movement um, was ACT down two and a half points to nine and uh, New Zealand First up two um, to from, from two to four. So they've, they've perhaps exchanged some uh, voters some of those uh, more reactionary rural small town voters maybe going leaving the act um yeah you think so yeah it's interesting kind of dynamic i guess winston's been in the news a little bit more in recent weeks so that that could have something to do with it um yeah choose choose your favorite reactionary right wing politician i guess yeah exactly well winston's the expert he's been around forever you can't just swoop in in one year and campaign for gun rights and take all the reactionary voters for yourself. Yeah, most, most experienced right-winger in the country. He, should, he really <laughs> needs to retire, doesn't he? Gosh. Yeah, I mean, people have been saying it for years. I don't think we're going to convince them on one or 200 today. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like the main the main story, I think, from that is the government confidence, right? Mm. Confidence in government still kind of steadily seems to be decreasing um, as it has been for how many months now? Since kind of near the end of last year? Yeah, yeah. So there's interesting um, dynamic with that where Roy Morgan kind of reports two measures. So they've got their own, you know, government confidence measure. And then there's another one uh, that they do with ANZ, which is the consumer confidence. And obviously there was sort of a big gap between those around, you know, um, COVID and, and um, the lockdowns where I guess there's a lot of confidence in, in the government's policy that they're implementing at the time, but a lack of consumer confidence uh, and uncertainty around what's going to happen with the economy, et cetera. Um, and those sort of started to get closer together, which they which they have been um, historically as well um, around the middle of last year. Um, but then, and then since then, they've really both fallen away um, quite substantially. So I think like it's going to be interesting to see the dynamics in the next couple of months with like how does that start to flow through to the polling, you know? And we've seen the political polling that is, and we've seen Labour start to fall away a little bit, and, and National overtake them in recent months, uh, and you know. If, if that reflects overall confidence in the government, are we going to see more of that? Um, yeah. Which it kind of has in the past, right? That's not a, that's not a crazy thing to, to assume might be replicated. Mm. And things are already going pretty badly for Labour in the polls. So I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on, mm. um, is that despite the much vaunted kind of 
world leading public health response to COVID, especially in that initial year, um, voters' memory is only so long, right? There's always going to be this, this point where if you're not delivering what you delivered, what you promised for two elections, um, there's going to come a crunch point at some, at some stage. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets us on to the next note that I wanted to quickly hit, which was actually Bloomfield. Mm. Resigning feels like the end of a, an era, um, short and sweet though it, though it was. Um, yeah, and it, obviously like a very big figure in New Zealand politics at the moment, um, plucked from a relative bureaucratic obscurity to become a, a huge celebrity figure leading the kind of, again, quote unquote, kind of science-based response that we had, um, which definitely for those first, for the first year, at least was very impressive compared to every other um especially kind of Anglo nation, right? As the US and the UK were, and Australia were excitedly opening up different parts of the economy and then shutting it down again when people got sick. Um, Ashley Bloomfield and Jacinda made quite a kind of pair announcing every day or every week these new um, numbers and kind of keeping a steady hand at the tiller kind of, um, I guess, demeanor that people really liked and glommed onto and has established a kind of, um liberal and kind of community-centric identity i suppose that people really liked and took to it yeah yeah i think it's really interesting i mean um i kind of got a couple of thoughts around um you know his his resignation like you say it kind of there's this interesting dynamic around uh, a, a relatively unknown bureaucrat who's now like become a celebrity and you know, COVID has kind of given us this new way that politics has been done, but I think it's it's almost um, reflective of the fact that there are people who have like extremely important jobs like this that we perhaps take for granted in, uh, in other times where, you know, times of relative normality, I guess, or, or where there's a lack of these types of crises. Um, and then something like this hits, and then all of a sudden uh, we kind of look to people like this um, and, and I think the one thing, like you alluded to that uh, Bloomfield was, was really um, great at was, you know, in a time of crisis, presenting like, an, you know, a lot of information uh, and giving people information and knowledge that they craved at the time, at a time of uncertainty in quite a calm um, and reassuring way. Um, and obviously, you know, providing a lot of really important advice to the government, which helped them um, you know, develop those policies that you're talking about. But I, I guess there's those two sides of it, right? There's, there's the actual, his job, which is to provide that advice, but then also this kind of broader public service image based kind of, um, yeah, role that, that he played relatively effectively, I thought. But um, my, my, other, my other sort of thought on, on the whole thing is that like, there is kind of a, a sort of reverence of him that's developed and as well as other, um, sort of very, very handsomely paid public figures as well. Um, and I think like that tends to, in our mainstream media environment, take away a little bit from, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of frontline workers who are paid, you know, very little and nowhere near enough um, to do those, the really fundamental jobs that they did throughout the pandemic um, that we really, yeah, shouldn't forget. And I, and I know, you know, um, people, uh, you know, strive to recognize their contribution, but um, I think when it comes to recognizing it in material ways, we, we often don't go far enough. Um, yeah. Yeah, we've been um, banging the pots and pans for Ashley Bloomfield every day, right? Mm. Like 
we can at least bang the pots and pans for less well remunerated figures. There was an article in the Herald um, talking about Ashley Bloomfield retiring, resigning, but also um, Caroline McElnay and Dr. Nikki Stefanogiannis, um, Director of Public Health and Public Health Deputy Director. So mm. three very high figures kind of resigning at the same time. Um, and that being presented as part of this broader kind of crisis in the health system, which we've been talking about for years. <laughs> it's not a new crisis. Our health system is in crisis in many ways. Um, but I think if you're talking about the, the mental stress and the anxiety of essentially running this uh, countrywide fight against an extremely tricky, fast-moving, adaptable pandemic that is extremely hard to clamp down on, then that's not the people you should be starting with when you're talking about individual sympathy, right? There are people out in um, rural Māori communities who've been um, vaccinating people and door knocking and doing all of this like very low level um, bureaucracy on the on the scale of the, the huge pyramid of bureaucratic power in New Zealand, I suppose. Which is like Ashley Bloomfield would say, you know, our high vaccination rates, right, has yep. been like one of the cornerstones of the success of uh, or the relative success, I guess, of um, the the pandemic response here. So, you know, and that, that wouldn't it wouldn't have happened uh, without those people. Um, it could yeah. have happened without, um, you know, without someone quite the caliber of Ashley Bloomfield uh, leading it. But it definitely wouldn't have happened without the frontline kind of response. Yeah, and to be clear, like he's not saying any of this. This is all our kind of chattering classes who meet <laughs> heroes, right? I'm sure Ashley Bloomfield would be the first person to say. Um, no, it's the nurses and the people who volunteered to give vaccinations. Like that's true, the people that true, we need yeah. to be um, thankful for. Um, but yeah, it's that kind of gallery thirst and uh, uh, NZ poll kind of need for individuals to glom onto. And I suppose that's a very human thing. Like you see celebrities in a, in a crisis, right? And he's, he's fulfilled that role extremely well. Like the same as Jacinda Ardern, he's very good at being a leader in a crisis, mm. um, which, is a, which is a real skill. Um, yeah, remember the, the Director General of Health before him was an accountant. Like, we can imagine it would have been a very different response in many ways <laughs> yeah. if, that, if that had still been the case. And thank goodness that, that it wasn't, right? Um, yeah, so these, these quote-unquote non-political, apolitical figures are, become political when the, when the time um, comes that we really see what they do. Almost as if the public service isn't this apolitical monolith just doing what's best for everyone. Um, in the first place, but maybe that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> okay, so the next thing we wanted to move on to is these house price headlines that have been coming up. Um, yeah, which is, has been a kind of moving, moving target, I guess, for mainstream economists and pundits. So we keep hearing this refrain and have been hearing it um, for quite some time that at some point this uh, house price uh, trajectory is going to change. Um, things will go back to normal, both in um, COVID and in house price terms, um, despite all the evidence that <laughs> seems to point the other direction. Uh, yeah, so Paul, what have you pulled together? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess like this sort of got on my nerves um, a few days ago when I saw um, an article. Uh, I think it was the original source was um, RNZ, but um, came out in, in One News um, talking about you know, well, the headline is house price growth is lowest in 19 months. And so there's a slowdown in the market, which is becoming more pronounced. And some some prices in some places are going backwards. And, you know, there's this type of like, and actually it has, has been going on, like you said, Philip, for some months. Um, there's an article, um, this is one of my favorites at the end of October, 
um, and stuff. And the headline was, yes, the runaway housing market has finally peaked. Um, but then since that time, um, the metric that they used uh, from, from CoreLogic, um, the price has actually increased about $100,000 average price um, since the time of that article. So, I mean, some look, some mountains have multiple peaks, Paul. <laughs> all right. It gets more complicated. Yeah. And I mean, like the one of the measures that has been referred to in some of the articles in recent months has been um, the QV measure, which is quite quite similar to CoreLogic. Um, they're both uh, mean house prices, um, but QV has started to decline in the last couple of months um, by about half a percent um, in each of the last couple of months. But CoreLogic has continued to increase. Last month, is, it was up 0.7% um, nationwide. So that's uh, just over a million dollars, 1,043,000. But in Auckland actually went up 1.4% and that's just in a single month. Um, and that has hit $1.5 million for the first time. So, you know, there's, there's a, I guess, a, a broader context to this, which I feel like is often missing in some of these headlines and, and some of these pieces, um, although some outlets tend to do a better than others. But one, one thing is, I was looking at, you know, how these changes compared with uh, over the last few years and the trends in the last few years. And if we look at the CoreLogic data, um, so since the start of 2017, um, the average price this is, all those years ago was $640,000 um, across the country. And then it took three years um, or three, three and a bit years actually until just before um, this latest kind of surge really took off uh, towards the back half of 2020 um, after sort of the, the first lockdown started to uh, get, get eased. So at, at that point, prices have only gone up 100,000 to about 740,000. Uh, and since then, so that's, you know, just over two and a half years since then. Uh, and it's now gone up another 300,000 since then. So it's just like, I, I guess what I'm trying to underscore here is the, just how kind of extreme this latest um, increase, the surge in, in house prices has been. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't think we should get too excited by slight dips of like half a percentage point for you know a few months um because yeah if if house prices fell a hundred thousand dollars like we still wouldn't be where we were sort of 12 months ago so it's um yeah it's it's, it's really taken off and i think we really need to like when we're reporting on these things and when we're discussing them i think we need to keep that that sort of more broad context in mind yeah, it's a very short-termist view, right, to say uh, over the last month, by one measure, there's been a marginal downtick. Um, that's, that's not something that you can infer um, any kind of turnaround from or even, even peaking, as I'd like to, as I'd like to say. Mm, it as well. It's like the, the, so some of the headlines and some of the, the sound bites kind of conflate those two things, right? Like house price growth is finally turning a corner and it's gone down from like 25% annual growth to like 24% or something. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting and I know you were probably gonna to get to this, but um, this, this research paper from the Infrastructure Commission, I thought was really interesting because I knew, you know, I, we, we talked about this before the show, I'm very much new to, to New Zealand politics and to New Zealand. And I was surprised to read that down zoning, which I knew is a big issue, in the United States was such a big issue in, in Auckland as well, right? And it, and it suggests that this call to, to simply build more housing, or you have to build more housing because then the price will drop, 
actually encounters a significant political and bureaucratic obstacle, which is not easily overcome. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, and I think also, like, if you look at those long-term trends as well, I mean, obviously supply is critical to, you know, the overall picture. And, and you know, I don't think anyone is really denying that. But when you when you look at 30% annual growth, you know, and, and the kinds of increases that we're talking about, you know, clearly it's it can't just be a, uh, a simple calculus between the number of properties and you know the number of people that are that are seeking those those properties um there you know there has to be you know some deeper elements that are involved um you know particularly on on the demand side in terms of what's making this accelerate so much i mean yeah if if it was as simple as a, a straight kind of supply demand relationship then the assumptions that uh, the bank economists had at the beginning of the lockdown that by um, essentially cutting immigration to zero for a period of time would negatively impact the housing market, right? That would have that would have played out, um, but it absolutely didn't. From from day one, it was increasing, and part of that is because there's this capital sloshing around and it has to go somewhere, right? So if your if your annual return on um, annual increase of uh, some some capital value you can purchase is over 20% in New Zealand, where else are you going to get an investment like that, right? If you have a small business, you'd be extremely lucky to be talking about numbers like that uh, in a very unpredictable lockdown with um, you know, government regulations suddenly cutting the amount of uh, effectively the revenue that is available to you each year, depending on how bad this disease is, blah, blah, blah. But one thing that's not going to be uh, impacted too negatively, as we've, we've seen from the Labour Party's um, remonstrations, I guess, is always going to be house prices because they know that their voted voter base owns houses. And if their uh, retirement plan, which is owning a $1.5 million house and maybe a batch is negatively impacted, they'll take a massive hit in the polls and they, they can't afford to do that. That's their jobs. So I think that's really what it comes down to is this kind of power dynamic um, between capital owning and uh, those of us less lucky who were born at the wrong time in, in history. Um, yeah, but it definitely has been this kind of ongoing uh, power struggle, I suppose, right, that has become clearer and clearer as people of um, people being renters have realized that our um, interests aren't really being represented mm. um, in this government, despite the, you know, transformation uh, rhetoric, the 2017 um Jacinda Ardern said something about capitalism not working in the housing market, which has been massively uh, misattributed and overblown and stuff. But even even what she was talking about, about a kind of quote unquote rebalancing of um, ability for people to live has really not played out in any kind of way. Right. So it's been good to see. Um, We had Ricardo on the other week on a podcast. And then I think just last week we were talking about maybe the Greens are going to um, push against labor from the left finally, um, which has taken what five years to say <laughs> since they got into power, uh, since they have been in with labor. Um, yeah, but it's good to see that finally there's some kind of big, bold proposals in the form of rent controls um, coming out. So we had uh, Chloe kind of softly pushing for it, it seemed like, and Ricardo's been really good on this. And then Marama finally fronting some media on it. Um, the co-leader of the Green Party, which I suppose makes sense. It's quite a big policy. And she's on paper, at least, what, Associate Minister of Homelessness or something to end homelessness, um, which as a position, she doesn't seem to have any power in or ability to do anything. 
um, but it makes sense that she's the she's the person fronting it, I guess. So yeah, it's been it's been nice to see some form of um, position being taken on the left by a parliamentary party in New Zealand um, to the left of Labour because it's been a a very dry uh, few years, especially mm. on housing stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's interesting, um, and I, I guess full disclosure, I'm a Green Party member, and you know I support the policy, so you're not really going to get much uh, disagreement from me on on this. But I mean, I guess like you know, this is a left wing podcast. Like, let's be honest. So, um, no surprises what? there. I'm a centrist. <laughs> uh, famed centrist. Famed centrist. Mean, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I think what's interesting in the kind of dynamics you're talking about is just how kind of early this has come about uh, in the in the election cycle. And it's it's going to be interesting to see, like, you know, leading up to the election, uh, you know, some if there's some more, like, in, from other parties too, like from National and Act, if there's going to be some more kind of, you know, concrete positions, like, because quite often, like, at this time, this point of the cycle, you know, people are signaling towards kind of particular policies. Um, I mean, I guess National have... have um, been talking about their kind of tax bracket tweaking or whatever it is but I mean that's something that they've been talking about for some time so it's not super new um, and I guess you could make the same argument for the for this Green Party policy as well there's probably just a bit more detail around it now um, but yeah it's it's great to see uh, and you know I think that hopefully it'll give the electorate a bit more you know a, a, a few more options to choose from in terms of like when they're when they're looking at political parties uh, and, and also just put some distance between the Greens and Labour and so, you know, people on the left who perhaps are a bit disenfranchised with Labour and, like you say, the inaction around the housing market, they can kind of look to a political party and it's sort of obvious, like, you know, who's sticking up for them. Yeah. Um, Jan, did you have any, any sort of thoughts on, um, on any of the broader housing stuff uh, and, and, you know, perhaps leaning on some of your what you've seen um, overseas? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, Germany has a long history of rent controls. Berlin has, of course, been in the news over the last couple of years with this um, referendum that they had towards the end of last year in which Berlin voters voted about a um, 60, 60 to 40% majority to expropriate corporate landlords. That means landlords who own more than 3,000 properties. That applies to, I think, a handful of companies who together own about one-sixth of all the apartments in Berlin, around a quarter of a million out of a million and a half, um, which is largely the result of the privatization of housing stock there. So you have a little bit of a different pattern, I think, there than you do in New Zealand, where we talked about this before the show, that the housing market here is a little bit less concentrated i think there was a staff spin-off investigation about who owns new zealand and the spread in the housing market a couple of months ago and that i thought was quite interesting in that it's similar that there are very few big corporate landlords but the overwhelming majority of the market is owned by i this was a new term to me mom and pop landlords <laughs> who own somewhere between three to seven properties um again as you were saying as a kind of you know, retirement nest egg situation. Of course, now it's these people are multimillionaires, going to live very comfortably uh, for the rest of their life and their children's lives, presumably. And it, it is surprising that it is surprising to me that rent controls are such a big, big sticking point here. Just because it seems, of course, you were saying it's a left wing podcast. It seems common sense to to say that there is, you know, 
uh, maximum amount that people should should spend of their of their wage on on rent every week or every month. But it's it comes back to this question of, for me in a way, I think a lot of people don't understand the country they live in, and I think this manifests in different countries and in different places in different ways. So in Germany, the big example is um, income distribution. So if you are in the top ten percent um, of incomes or in the bottom 10%, there's you know, nine tenths between you. But the perception between those two people tends to be, it was a good um, study about that a couple of years ago. It tends to be that there is only about three or four tenths between you. So people think they are much closer to the middle than they actually end up being. And as a result, you, you have a lot of work to do to explain to people, no, actually you are much further apart. There are a lot of people who are far richer than you. Almost everyone has more income than you do or almost everyone has less income than you do. And I think it's similar here. You you really have to do a lot of work to explain to people what the country they live in actually looks like on paper, on, on data, um, because it's, it can be very powerful to, to have these kind of, you know, anecdotal bits and pieces, but it, it doesn't represent the bigger, the bigger picture. And I think that's why it's really important to look at, to look at the market as a whole and to look at, as you were saying, the, the development of the market, even in recent years as a whole, rather than just individual neighborhoods, individual houses. Mm. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I mean, I think that's something that's kind of like um, plagued housing reporting, you know, over here for a little while is just like the kind of lack of lack of data, really. Um, and, you know, that's probably partly due to the lack of regulation as well on the market. Uh, and just, you know, the lack of um, information that's being like, we don't have a kind of sort of central register for um, landlords, you know, so we did, so there's, it's really difficult to actually understand like how many people in the country own a rental property, you know, and, and how, like how concentrated is that? Um, it's not actually easy to figure out. And, you know, some of the reports that you're talking about uh, are sort of the best that we've got. Um, but, you know, even, even those have the, like the data that they're based on, um, there's quite a few limitations there. So I think there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and then, you know, the broader kind of communications point that you're talking about as well, I think is really uh, interesting and important. Um, yeah. yeah yeah for sure and i think i think you're sorry no go go oh i think i think you're right you know i don't want to i don't want to end up sounding like a, a a good liberal i don't know that <laughs> the information in and of itself corrects people's perceptions right but you have to know where people are so that you can address the message to them properly and without good data right and that's something else we're seeing on COVID, for instance right without good data it's very difficult to to talk the messaging properly and to make a case for the kind of things that you know, might make sense, but we have, you know, for instance, where do people, I mean, with, with regards to the COVID example, where do people get infected? Do they get infected in school, in the workplace, when they go shopping, when they go to the restaurant, right? It's so difficult to know. And of course it ends up, it ends up in this, this uncertainty ends up benefiting people who want to make the case, for instance, that, oh, we should all go back to work, we should all go back to the restaurant and, oh, we shouldn't complain because rents could be much worse. And anyway, the housing market is turning a corner. And it's... Mm. It's a, yeah, it's a kind of, it's a benefit to, I guess, those who want nothing to happen, right? If, if there's no data, um, unfortunately, the kind of the, I suppose, psychological tendency is for people to say, well, if we can't, if we can't know, if we don't know, we can't know. And if we can't know, we may as well do nothing. Like, it's that kind of drive, it's an almost like nihilistic reaction to the data, right? That's like, well, we don't actually know who owns yeah. the houses. So why change anything? We don't know that it will help. Whereas like, that's no more yeah. rational than saying well then we should change something because you know if it's a complete unknown so the reaction yeah. of um the kind of homeowning 
uh, lobby and the, the kind of mum and dad investors that you identified that they're very human, right? They're just like you and me, uh, the mums and dads, that kind, of, that kind of rhetoric that comes out every time. Whenever people talk about, well, we need more data to be able to um, evaluate how centralized, how powerful these actors are essentially in the market. Um, the reaction is, well, what will that do? That won't uh, solve the problem. But that's, that's not an argument against doing it, right? So that, that's sort of bringing in all these impediments. It's very much like the, I guess, like the greatest trick the landlord lobby pulled was convincing us they didn't exist because we don't know who they are. We don't know how powerful they are um, because they're, yeah. not, they're fighting against us knowing that information. It's really like base rate stuff. And it's, of course, that's the, that's the, for a long time, the really big issue of the, the next thing that we're going to talk about, right, which is, which is climate change, right, the, the companies, I mean, I have a family connection to um, ExxonMobil, right, I will disclose this here, they basically funded my education, right, but at the same time, it, they, you know, they are the, it's, I'm sorry, it's true, what can I say, um, it's, you know, they, they are the worst among, among, even among, you know, um, the big oil companies, and that they funded, they have funded research which effectively denies the connection between fossil fuel emissions and climate change, you know, for 40, 50 years. And they've always said, oh, we need more information, we need more data before we can actually do anything. And it's it's in some ways similar, right? And I think part of the problem too is that people have trouble disconnecting the people who they might know, right? You might know someone who owns a couple of properties and oh, they're lovely people. And I'm sure they are. I'm sure they, well, I'm sure they can be anyway, but they're also political actors, right? The people you know, they are political actors. They have political interests. And I think you need to, right? You need to just be able to, I don't know, disaggregate that a little bit. Yeah, totally. I think that's, that's a really crucial point. And yeah, before we shift onto the climate change stuff, um, another kind of uh, sort of, example of, of that point is whenever um talk of uh you know property owners you know these sort of mum and dad landlords that might own you know a couple of properties whenever they get framed as speculators they get like very very upset um and and i guess this is the you know the sort of personalizing versus yeah uh non-personalizing kind of um political actor uh you know dichotomy thing working here but um you know if, if, if you buy a property and you're like wondering what you know, when is the best time to sell it and you know how you know how is that going to impact on the capital gain that you receive you're a speculator you know it doesn't mean that you're good or evil it just means that you're speculating on the value of what this property might be um and so i think it's like yeah it's really important to just yeah sort of try to try to analyze it um in that respect and and you know this can also work to um the detriment of the left i think sometimes when people start talking about good and bad landlords you know um and are oh, the good landlords you know the, i have a great landlord and they didn't increase my rent by so much this year etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and if only all landlords were like them and, and you know the landlord lobby use that uh, often as well like if, if there's a story about um you know some really terrible treatment that uh, a tenant has faced by a landlord, it, it'll be just a few bad apples or something like that. And, you know, I don't think that's actually helpful for us to address the underlying kind of structural issues uh, and, and the, the, you know, the problem of the, the political actors, um, like you're talking about, Jan, uh, which will actually help us yeah, come up with, you know, some solutions to this. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that political action actors framing, I think is really important um, because it's easy to talk about bad apples, right? In any context, like, 
you, you say when there's a bad story about a land a landlord but there's very rarely those stories there are dozens of times more stories about quote-unquote bad tenants right um where a landlord goes into their property that they'd innocently never visited in 10 years presumably and come back and the walls are all like covered in whatever and something's ripped up and the neighbors are complaining about noise control or whatever so if you're going to do the kind of uh good tenant bad tenant good landlord bad landlord thing it kind of leads you into the circle where it's about individual actions and um if we simply all played by the rules then everything would kind of work um which is a, a premise that i don't think is a safe one to be starting from when you're talking about this huge um exploding kind of asset um asset class i suppose mm. that's like basically uh ripping the heart out of the future of <laughs> the new zealand economy um which I don't, I don't really think is um to put it much more strongly than it is it's really like foreclosing our future in a lot of ways um as people who didn't buy a house before 2020 um it's really hard to see past past that kind of barrier um without massive political action to turn it around and talking about massive political action to turn it around um yeah the ipcc report came out um another uh another note on the kind of symphony of um oh we should probably change something that we've had from the ipcc i suppose nothing that people who pay a lot of attention to these issues would probably find super surprising some pretty kind of radical notes it sounded like um talking about uh systemic change rather than individual change which is always nice to see um explicitly talking about uh big actors in the global economy and uh oil and gas and you know construction and all these like big sectors agriculture that we know will um need to have huge revolutionary changes in terms of logistics and power structures and all these things that we've talked about a lot before um yeah but paul what did you make of that the new report well i have to admit i haven't actually read the report itself but i've uh, read a few of the um of the pieces of from the from people that have um namely mark dalda you know from from newsroom i think always he does good work on this stuff awesome. read mark dalda yeah awesome work um so yeah don't listen to us read don't it. listen to us pause <laughs> um, the podcast read newsroom come back but i guess my my takeaway is that um you know we've had a few of these types of reports and they kind of like you're saying philip they sort of increase in the uh you know um the urgency and and the and the sort of severity of their tone um with with each report uh and yeah it, we we sort of we know that we're running out of time um and you know we we need even more drastic action to kind of reach potentially um this 1.5 degree pathway uh if if that's still attainable and, and i think um there's you know more more and more reports that um throw uh, doubt onto that so yeah but then you know, at the same time, there was a, there was another report by Mark Delta just I think yesterday that revealed that um, we had you know New Zealand-based uh, diplomats that were lobbying to um, remove aspects um, of the summary from the summary report in relation to um, plant-based diets and and so on. And I, I don't know sort of exactly what those things were um, in in the context of that summary. And and like as someone who doesn't eat meat, um, I actually don't think that we should necessarily be focusing on these types of individual actions, you know, as, as a sort of something that's going to save us from climate catastrophe, you know, but, but I think what this, what this speaks to is, um, 
obviously we're an agricultural nation we've got a large dairy industry it's our biggest export um, we're the biggest dairy exporter in the world uh, and there's a lot of interests that you know would benefit from you're not having a rapid shift away from animal agriculture um, and I think that's kind of reflected in, in this lobbying uh, and, and so I guess um, I, I bring that up because we've got another instance of these types of reports and then we're kind of doing the complete opposite of what we need to be doing um, and it just it just really doesn't seem to be that kind of urgency that's reflected in like what you know, there's a growing frustration from like the climate and environmental movement about even the, the current government and the lack of action that uh, we've seen from them um, in responding to this. You know, there's there's lots of talk like, you know, James Shaw agreed with the report. He agreed that we haven't been doing enough for decades, et cetera, et cetera. But what are we doing? Like, what are we doing right now? I know we've got the emissions reduction plan coming up um, that's going to be released in May. But, you know, like, let's be honest, that's not going to be enough either. Um, unless it's a complete, completely radical turn um, from, you know, away from everything that we've seen from this government for five years, it's not going to be enough. So um, I guess there's a sort of a frustration and, and sort of despair around these types of reports whenever they come out that, yeah, I can't help but sympathize with. I thought it was really interesting, um, this, this reporting from Mark Boulder about, as you mentioned, Paul, the, the exclusion of this idea that you shouldn't eat, shouldn't eat meat or or dairy, um, in favor of, I think they, the people who negotiated on behalf of New Zealand then justified themselves by saying, oh, we we replaced it with the term sustainably healthy diets because that's the term the UN agencies use and all of that kind of stuff. But I think it speaks volumes that it appears like James Shaw didn't know this. And the point for me that I take away, and maybe this is too granular, but it's. It, it, it shows the limits of even having, you know, I know he's not the most progressive politician of the Green Party, I dare say, but it speaks volumes to the fact that you can't just have a minister in place, right? There is a whole apparatus below them. And maybe he didn't know because of course he can't supervise the actions or you know the, the planning of every department in the ministry. It's simply too big for that. But it speaks volumes that you can't just replace the minister and hope that the, the ministry changes uh, because there are a lot of people working there who have their own interests, who have their own kind of long entrenched, you know, held views who might, you know, again, they are people. Maybe they have family members who work in the dairy industry. Maybe they have their own views, which suggest that this is not that big a deal. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to call anyone who works in the, in the, in the ministry for the environment and climate change denier, but it, but it is true that these are also people who end up working for things that, you know, who end up lobbying for things that they believe in rather than simply government policy, right? And it, the minister can't control all of them all the time. And I think it speaks to the fact that, yeah, this is a really difficult endeavor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that hits a beat that we hit earlier today, which is that the public service can be political actors too, right? That's, that's quite deeply entangled um, in the New Zealand psyche, I suppose, is this um, pure New Zealand, clean green New Zealand, agricultural nation kind of background. And we see those things as united rather than pulling against each other. The kind of um, the good farmer feeling, it's, it comes back to that like individualism that we were talking about before um, has meant that if everyone simply is a good kind of actor doing their thing, then we'll have this um, pristine country uh, covered in cows, presumably, but somehow still um, the envy of the world. Um, yes, which is, it's funny that that crosses a lot of the kind of conversations that we've talked about in terms of 
Um, you know, Ashley Bloomfield has a political ideology. Um, all all levels all levels of society have political ideologies and are political actors. That's a fine. That's okay to admit that. Like um, the public service yeah. and the Ministry of the Environment and MFAT all have individuals in them working for their interests, and that'll include their class interests and be inflected by their history. And if you're a um, person of a certain type who works in the in a ministry at a reasonable level of seniority, that probably involves um, property ownership and education in a certain system um, that kind of revered the agrarian history of New Zealand to some extent. So there's all these kind of intertwined histories. So yeah, I think it's it's extraordinarily naive to think that um, the kind of direction of travel within these ministries, as you say, Jan, like they're not going to suddenly turn based on what the minister says, even if the minister is doing their best and uh, pointing, trying to point the ministry in a certain way, it's going to take huge change within those organizations as well as at the top mm. and just one other point on this i think it's um interesting like the the kind of the electoral polit politics calculus of it um and like like you're saying jan uh if james Shaw's like climate change minister but is kind of reliant on you know a whole bunch of um it, it, even if there's you know there's that distinction between the the ministries themselves and the minister not being able to uh, you know, sort of that doesn't have the entire ministry doesn't just change because you change the minister. But with climate change, it's, it's there's kind of more to it than that as well. Because you know, as even James Shaw would say, like there's lots of other ministries that need to get on board with this project, right? Um, you know, transport and agriculture and um, energy and so on. And you know, those aren't um, controlled by the Green Party. Those ministers, or they don't have green ministers. Um, and so this is where the kind of relationship with Labour and the kind of political power between the two parties and the, and the dynamics between the two parties becomes really apparent. Um, and I think that's that's a big question, you know, like if if that's been a big uh, barrier to um, the Greens implementing their policies, um, then, you know, that's that's a question for them going into the next election and um, and really how effective that's been. Um, yeah, because I mean, it's, I don't think it's any good to just like say, well, we would love to, you know, we would love to implement this 1.5 degree pathway or this, or we would love to have a stronger emissions reduction plan, whatever it is. Um, but then, you know, labor ministers are getting in the way of that. Like, what are we going to, you know, what, what are they going to do about that? Like, <laughs> it, mm. can, it can't just end, I don't think it can just end there. Like, there needs to be a, there needs to be consequences for that, you know? Yeah. And, and material solutions rather than, just the kind of the further and faster um, watchword that we've bashed quite a bit on this podcast, um, to be fair, but that the, the Greens kind of went in in 2017 to their agreement with Labour, this idea that they could just push them a bit further. Um, and that that really seems to have stagnated, um, to say the least, over the, over the period of time and just meant that if you're always pushing for 10% more in every area, um, you'll be negotiated down to 1% more and you'll think that's a win, right? Um, against this huge immovable object of the popularity of Jacinda over that period of time. Um, yeah, but we're, we're, running, we're running long, so we better move to the final issue we wanted to speak about today, the French election, which is very exciting and heartening and I'm sure will leave us in a much better mood than finishing <laughs> on climate change uh, for once. So... Jan, did you want to take it away? You've been looking at this more closely uh, than we have recently. Yeah, I'm happy to 
I don't know, I might give a quick intro as to what that even, what does it mean for the French to have an election? Um, so the French election, the, the joke is that the French elect themselves new autocrat every five years because the Fran France currently is in uh, a state form which they call the Fifth Republic, uh, which has a strong presidential system. They have an election every five years. The election comes in two rounds. The first round is this Sunday, French time. Um, the two candidates which lead in the first round then go into a runoff in two weeks' time, and that is most likely to be, unfortunately, Emmanuel Macron, the incumbent, and Marine Le Pen, who challenged him in the second round last time. Last time, he got about, I think, two-thirds of the vote, 65% thereabouts. Le Pen had about 35% of the vote, um, which was double that her father got in 2002. He was, it was the first time that Farid candidate got to the second round. Um, she doubled that share of the vote the last time, and it looks like it looks like she has a good chance of winning this time. So she rebranded herself. Um, the party used to be called the Front National. It is now called the Rassemblement National. It is the classic French far right party of the Fifth Republic. Um, her father's an interesting history. He was a paratrooper in the Algerian War. His knife was found at the site of a of a killing, of a brutal killing of a civilian. Um, and she embraced this change of the party name and her image in order to de-demonize herself, um, as she called it. And it sounds like, from what I've been reading, that the most effective contributor to that de-demonization hasn't been Le Pen herself or anything that she's done, um, but a third candidate called Eric Zemmour, uh, who is a French pundit, intellectual, himself the child of um, Algerian Jews who came to France and who is maybe maybe the best Anglophone equivalent would be is the Tucker Carlson of France in a way, although more intellectual, more urban, more Parisian. Um, <laughs> he writes these big tomes, 500 page plus. Um, in which he rants against immigrants and immigration, but in a way that you know appeals to the to the republic, you know, to the integrity of the republic. Um, you know, he rants against wokeism, which is the you know the French culture war term. Um, so it's really interesting to see that he has been the most effective kind of contributor to this dehumanization of Le Pen. The only really left-wing candidate you have to mention is Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who leads a, a party called La France Insoumise, um, who is a controversial character. He's not the most sympathetic character, you know, um, and he's also not, he's also not exactly a, a spring chicken. He's now 70 years old. He ran last time, narrowly missed the second round. Um, and he, in a way, has the most transformative agenda and also the most Agenda, the agenda which is most kind of positive when it comes to immigration. So he wants an increase in the minimum wage. He wants the wealth tax back, which Macron um, repealed his first year in office. He wants to, to put together a huge climate fund and um, perhaps most significantly, he wants to, to um, institute what he calls the sixth Republic, because and this is maybe important to, to know with regards to France, the reason they have the system that they have now because in 1958, they were losing the war in Algeria. They were facing a um, military coup at home. And um, they, they called in the Gaulle, 
And they asked the goal, what do you need to win the war and keep the military at bay? And he said, I need a presidential system. And that is what they have now, effectively. It's a little bit of a simplistic recounting of the story, but I think it is important that, you know, the system is born of um, kind of wars at the end of empire and the staving off of um, threats to, to the Republic. And in order to do that, they, they basically put together a semi authoritarian system of government, um, which of course has democratic elements. You know, I mentioned that earlier that there's no question that the elections in France are, are free and fair, but it is true that, you know, the French president is far stronger than a prime minister in New Zealand or Britain or, or a chancellor in Germany. So in that sense, not comparable, but um, yeah, well, silvering, I think. Mm, so, um, so Macron and uh, Marine Le Pen are the, the likely um, top two figures, but and, and I mean, so from some of the polls that I've seen, um, I think they're both in the sort of mid twenties. Is that about right? And then like Mélenchon is yeah. kind of approaching, or he's sort of the late teens, so he's kind of 15, 16, 17 percent, maybe a little bit higher in some polls. And do you think that there is any kind of chance that um, Mélenchon will catch? you know, Le Pen or um, potentially Macron? Or is it is it pretty much a dead set that that we're going to see a centrist and a far-right candidate again um, in the runoff? I think the most likely scenario is that it is going to be Macron against Le Pen and that that's going to be a nail-biter. But it is one of these cases where you, you see all of this polling and you see all of the polling for the first round, which is of course one thing, but then you also see polling for the runoff. So in a way that was maybe the closest analog is when you have the US election and say the Democrats were nominating their candidate to run against Trump. And there were all these you know, comparisons, how will Hillary do, how will Bernie do against, against Trump? And you get some of the same things in France. So you get this, you get Macron's posited there is, very, there is basically no polling that I have seen of, this, of, a, of a kind of imagined second round between, say, Mélenchon and Le Pen, which I think is significant. Um, there is polling of what would happen if Mélenchon faced Macron in the second round, and it looks like Mélenchon would lose, which is not surprising. Mm. Um, but it looks like Macron might lose against Le Pen in the second round, but there's no polling that I've seen that looks at uh, Mélenchon versus Le Pen in the second round. And I think in that kind of way, you frame the, the possibilities of the selection. You narrow the window for, for radical change in a way because you can't imagine that the centrist wouldn't make it to the second round. Mm. And of course, then neither can the voters, right? Um, which, is, which is not to say that the only reason Mélenchon might not end up in the second round against Le Pen is the polling, but I think it does, it does something to narrow, you know, the horizons of possibility, you might call it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, last... Ooh, long time ago now, but in the last French election, um, there was this kind of refrain um, on the French left, at least, that was like the um, uh, the during the the kind of centralization, I suppose, when everyone was saying, "Oh, we need to vote for uh, Mélenchon," even before the first round, they were saying we need to push. Um, sorry, not Mélenchon, um, Macron. Macron from the left um, and we need to support him against Le Pen because that's the that's the opportunity right but there was this refrain that um, Macron um, this year Le Pen uh, next election right was the kind of the thought because everyone could see that he had um, tapped to the right and probably not as as hard and or as fast as it seemed like he did but 
there was there was some kind of skepticism. I remember that uh, there was an expectation that he'd capitulate to capital very quickly and um, be kind of a leader for the for the one percent, um, and that kind of the Jupiterian image, I guess, that he portrays. He likes to, seems to like to think of himself as some kind of like philosopher king. Um, doesn't doesn't help that any. So, like, what what surprises do you think they've been over his? Um, leadership like he's, he's come out pretty popular pretty unpopular considering he was a, a kind of unity uh, establishment candidate last time right yeah i mean it's interesting right um he was a member of the government of francois hollande uh, the last president of the french socialists from 2007 to 2012 who is you know one of the least popular presidents in the history of the fifth republic right and so my the the question as to whether macron has been a uh, a surprise in some ways has to depend on where you start and how cynical you were to begin with and the question that you might want to answer right in that case is how likely was it ever going to be that a man who was you know minister for the economy under Francois Hollande who was responsible already then right for the kind of neoliberal reforms of the French welfare state was ever going to be a kind of popular president. Um, I don't find that particularly surprising. I think you're right. The people certainly I talked to five years ago were saying that if you get Macron now, you will have a better chance of getting Le Pen in five years time. That is where we have ended up, I think. Um, what would have happened if you had gotten Mélenchon instead five years ago? Who can say? Um, yeah, the horizons look pretty dark and grim and narrow at the moment. I think, yeah, I, Macron, Macron is an interesting character. And I think in part because on the one hand, he, he um, you know, he worked for, for some, you know, he, he has a big, he has a great intellectual background, right? He, uh, he worked for Paul Ricoeur, I think, as an editorial assistant. Um, he, likes to think of himself, as you say, as some kind of philosopher king at the same time he loves to cosplay. So recently he, maybe two weeks ago, he had a call with Zelensky where he then, he, in order to attend this call and be photographed by his official photographer, he wore, you know, jeans and a hoodie from the French paratroopers for no reason other than to, to look kind of martial uh, on, the, on the official photos. But at the same time, you know, he is, he's a guy who is very, sanguine I think and it's 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 difficult to underestimate I think how brutal the repression of protest movements against the reforms in France has been right I think that made the rounds a couple of years ago with the gilets jaunes and the really kind of breathtaking brutality of the French police right the people lost hands and eyes um, to to the rubber bullets the use of tear gas is very liberal the classic chant is against the riot police is CRSSS um, with an appeal to the background of um, the, the early riot police in the Waffen-SS. And it is, it is striking how authoritarian the response has been. And I think we will see that continue on the Macron if he does, if he does get reelected. The thing about Le Pen, right, the really bizarre thing is that Macron has tried to overtake her on the right on immigration. And it is, I think, also difficult to overestimate how Islamophobic France really is. Um, and of course, between that and Zemmour, she now looks 
tame. You know, she doesn't look like a serious threat. And of course, even though Macron says there is no alternative to the neoliberal reform of the French welfare states, um, Le Pen quite clearly lays out a plan for a renewed social state that you will only, of course, be able to benefit from if you're white and a French citizen. But nevertheless, right, it is the kind of challenge that Macron has no effective response to other than that cannot possibly be done because reforms are necessary. And that's not to advocate for, you know, the social credentials of Marine Le Pen, far be it for me. Um, I don't know that any of the things that she proposes would actually end up, you know, gaining a majority or effectively improving the lives, even of the white French population, of course, at the same time, would make absolutely miserable the lives of millions of people who live in France and who are French, right? Um, but simply happen to not be white. I, I don't know. The, the best hope is that all the polls are wrong. Um, and other than that, the second best hope is that Macron wins, which is dire, sorry to say. <laughs> That's a great note to end on. Love that, love that for us. Yeah, back to our, our dire predictions of um, despair and pessimistic ending to podcasts. Love that for us. No, that's cool. Um, thanks, Jan. That's really helpful because whilst we sort of, in New Zealand, I think we're, we're notoriously bad at comparing ourselves to overseas countries, especially non-English speaking ones, um, because our journalists don't have the time or the inclination to read foreign languages. Um, we feel far away. From most places in the in the corner of the world so unless it's uh australia or the us or the uk that's too hard um it's kind of too hard basket to pay, pay attention to foreign politics so that's one thing we try to do at least um when we can or when there's something that we think is a useful comparison or an interesting kind of touch point and again this kind of connects to a lot of issues that we've spoken about um over years but obviously increasingly recently as this kind of um reactionary uh, quote unquote economic populist um, white working class narrative from the states and we've you know we've seen it around the world it's the kind of the drive for that kind of um, fascist adjacent mindset right that's like uh, we can construct a society together but the together is very small like the together is just us it's a very um, I guess small c conservative yeah. understanding of of society in some ways um yeah, but I think it, I think it is it's going to be instructive to see how people how people vote in the second round as well, um, because as you've painted, there seems to be this picture with very little hope or excitement for the left or like a hopeful future, and it, it is really hard to see someone like Macron, who we've already kind of seen his failures on in so many ways, being able to compete against someone who can construct any vision of the future, even if it's um, dark and cynical and um, bigoted and exploitative um, and kind of capitalizing on those base instincts and revanchist I suppose is probably the best word yeah um, yeah so and, it, it, yeah and, it's worrying right and and kind of paints a, a vision for a lot of other democratic states that will have similar comparisons potentially right if that's if the only alternative is this kind of um, yeah revanchist uh, what is it, eco-fascist uh, direction, then that's what we'll probably see. That's why we need a stronger alternative mm. um, that's not painting that as the only as the only way forward, like constructing utopias um, that work for everyone. Yeah, good times. Good times, <laughs> right, guys? Thanks. Uh, we'd, better, we'd better wrap up, but... Um, it'll, it'll be great, actually, to cover the, um, the French election in a bit more detail um, over the next couple of weeks. You know, we've got the final round. Um, coming up as well so that's um 
I wouldn't maybe maybe not something to look forward to, but <laughs> well, we look forward to covering, <laughs> I guess, um, some some events that we look less forward to. I think it's important because yeah. like the the understanding of um, countries like France from overseas, uh, I'm sure is I'm sure we have huge gaps um, in our understanding, but. I think it's important to try to try to see these different kind of potential futures, even on a purely individual, um, selfish kind of basis, because it can show us different ways that society can turn. Right. So mm. you can you can learn things from these inflection points, even um, even if you're just kind of doing your best. So we'll definitely try to do more on the French election um, after we have these initial numbers out that will obviously um, open up more possibilities for us to be able to talk in a more informed way. Yeah, so we'll definitely have you back on. Jan, to talk about that some more and probably more people because I think it'll be a yeah possibly very hopeless but possibly very exciting um, period of time. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Paul. That's been one or two hundred for another week. Um, share us. Tell your friends about us. Uh, give us a dollar on Patreon. Um, visit our website. There's a couple of articles up as I mentioned at the beginning from Jan on. Um, the German military rearming, although that sounds like a kind of moving uh, issue that by the time you visit our website, I'm sure Jan will have diligently written three more pieces about the uh, <laughs> German military because <laughs> it's, it's quite an interesting uh, turn for the culture and the polit political economy and the military and um, Europe as a whole, obviously from the recent past. Thanks for visiting us. Listen again, share us, like us, do all those things. Rate us five stars. Can someone add a new um, uh, review to our re review site? Because the top one just says Philip is great or something. And it's really, it's causing me anxiety every time I visit that page. <laughs> so if someone could give us a five-star review that doesn't have my name on it, I'd feel a lot better about it. Thanks, everyone, and we'll catch you next time. Relentless routine embers of your dreams is a lie aspirational will you die keeping your glass half full the relentless routines the dying embers of your dreams is a lie aspirational will you die keeping your glass half full you don't hate your nation you hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays You hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays